بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة وأتم التسليم على سيدنا محمد الصادق الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله this is our final lesson covering module 7 on family law and after module 7 comes module 8 which is about financial matters Fardain knowledge concerning financial matters some of which we've covered here and there but that's in module 8 and then module 9 we'll see a dramatic shift as we get into the miscellaneous aspects of halal and haram and then other areas so for module 7, it is ahwal shakhsiya, family law. So we talked about marriage, we talked about conflict and divorce. We also talked about the rights of parents. That was module 7.3 last week and tonight inshallah. We're going to conclude module 7 looking at 7.4 and 7.5, the rights of children and family ties. So. We start with children and their rights and there's a lot that can be said but we want to boil down the Fardain aspects of children's rights tonight and we begin by mentioning that children are the fruit of marriage and they are means of pleasure or pain in this life meaning they can be a great joy and they can also be other than that. And that's the nature of dunya. Because it's a human being. And as that human being grows older, you realize that this human being also, like you, has a nafs, has an ego. Children have rights upon their parents. And the ulama say that these rights start even before the child is conceived. So there's conceptual rights that the child would have even before the child exists, before its birth, during its gestation in the womb, as well as rights post-birth. Most of the rights we're going to cover are, of course, post-birth, but there are some before birth and during the gestation. When it concerns the rights of children, we want to start with the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an, where he addresses the believers saying, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu qu anfusakum wa ahlikum nara wa quduha nasu wal hijara. O you who believe, save yourselves and your families from a fire whose fuel is men and stones. And there's a lot of tafsir about this verse and what it means. Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma stated more or less that it means you are obliged to rear your children so they know their deen, they know their Lord. Likewise, Allah Ta'ala tells us that our children and our wealth are a fitna. And Allah has with him a tremendous reward. There's two phrases here. Allah Ta'ala says in the beginning that our wealth and our children are a fitna for us. And then he says, and indeed Allah has with him a tremendous reward. Indicating that the tremendous reward is in store for those people who know how to manage the fitna of wealth and the fitna of their children. That reward is in store for people who can manage the fitna of both. As far as hadith are concerned, and there's many we'll cover tonight, but touching on the importance of rights, the Prophet ﷺ told us that upon death, a person's deeds will cease, except for three things. Sadaqa jariya, a perpetual charity. Knowledge that is left behind from which others will benefit, and a pious child who continuously prays for his parents. So these are the three avenues of us earning reward and blessings 
without our own acquisition, just after we're dead, we receive the reward from whatever project we may have been a part of or contributed to that is ongoing and benefiting people, or some knowledge that we left behind. It could be a book. It could be someone we taught who went on to teach thousands of people in a pious child who prays for his parents making dua for them. So what are the rights of children? The ulama say that the rights of children, if we start from the womb, we can start before the womb and say that it's some of the, right, the rights of children that the man chooses the right wife and the wife chooses the right husband. That's a right, even though the child doesn't exist yet. But in the realm of existence, as the child is in the womb of the mother, it is the right of that child that it is nourished with halal food. So that child has rights on the mother even before it's born. Just as the mother cannot terminate the pregnancy, likewise the mother is responsible for ensuring that it is, she is feeding the fetus halal food. Another right of the child is that after it is born, we call the adhan in the baby's right ear and the iqama in the left ear. And this is based on a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. The ulama mentioned that the wisdom behind calling the adhan and the iqama in the newborn child is that it is a way of reminding it of its fitrah, that primordial nature on which it was created, and the first words it hears coming into this dunya are the remembrance of Allah Ta'ala. The praise of Allah, the glorification of Allah, the shahada of La ilaha illallah and Muhammadun Rasulullah. So you call the adhan in the baby's right ear, the iqama in the left ear. Another right is that you give the child a good name. And it doesn't have to be necessarily an Arabic name. Right? That's a misconception some people have. The point is that the name is good. And the Prophet ﷺ did encourage us to name our children after Anbiya. This is in a hadith. He also said that the most beloved names to Allah are Abdullah and Abdul Rahman. But those are not the only names we would choose for children. We can choose any name that is good in meaning. It can be in Arabic, it could be Persian, it could be English, as long as the name has a beautiful meaning. Now it's our tradition as Muslims that we tend to name our children with Arabic names because those are most often the names of either Anbiya mentioned in the Qur'an or Sahaba and so on. Or Abd, the servant of, and then one of the names of Allah Ta'ala. So these are all good, but a person can name the child with a non-Arabic name as long as the meaning is good. And it's important to give some thought to this too because the names have an impact on the child's nature. It's a very subtle, strange thing, but we have a hadith mentioned in the Muwatta of Imam Madik, where we see this correspondence between names and realities, where it mentions how Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu came across an individual from uh, a tribe, a distant Arab tribe, and he asked him the name of his tribe and his own name. His name was something like Thaqib, and the name of the tribe was Hutama. And he said, go back to your village, your house is on fire. There's a connection between those names which were indicating fire. Uh, and you see this, people draw lessons from this. It's not superstition, right? If you go back to 1986 in uh, America, I don't remember the exact date, but in 1986, there's a space shuttle that was taking off. And anyone who was in America in 86 will remember that. They were watching on TV. As it was taking off, it blew up mid in the, in the middle of the air. And this was a catastrophe. Does anyone remember the name of that space shuttle? The space shuttle? Challenger. Right? Now, one person told me, rahimahullah, that he was watching this on TV. And he was so shocked that he decided to go just recite Qur'an. 
And he opened up randomly to Surah Rahman. And he read the verse, La yanfudun illa bi sultan. They will not pass the heavens illa bi sultan. Well, that sultan was challenged, right? So the names are important. Anyhow, that's a bit of a tangent. So you give the child a good name, whatever language it is. Another right for the child is that you spend on their needs with halal income. And how much you spend and what exactly you're buying is determined by orf. That word we say over and over again is determined by the custom of the people. So the child receives what a normal child of his age and in that neighborhood and in that region would receive of food and clothing and these items. The Prophet ﷺ absolutely forbade that the man, the man neglect his family to the point of abandoning them or leaving them to go to waste without material support. He says in the hadith, It's a sufficient sin. It's enough of a sin for a person to neglect those on whom he's obliged to spend. The Arabic word for family, there's different ones. There's usra. And usra means that to which you're bound, right? A prisoner is called an asir. So the usra is those people to whom you're bound by family ties very closely. The other word for family, we could say ahl, but that's people. But another word is aila, right? Aila literally means dependence. Those people who are depending on you. So nafaka, just as it is obligatory on the man to provide financial maintenance for his wife, it's also obligatory on him to provide it for his children. Other rights include tarbiyah. And tarbiyah, we say here, is upbringing. And that includes a lot of things. It includes among the rights of children is that they are taught about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala meaning they're taught about the existence of Allah his names his attributes and we don't mean in a technical way we just mean they are taught about their creator in whom they already believe based on their fitrah but they are taught about Allah ta'ala and worshiping Allah ta'ala alone they're taught about the reason why we are here in the first place what is our purpose of existence they are reminded of this time and time again till that becomes uh, firmly embedded in them and they recognize that we see this in the Quran in a number of verses but one of the most prominent ones is in the story of the sage the Hakim Luqman Luqman the sage Allah mentions in the Holy Quran that he was once speaking to his son and he said to him oh my son ya bunay la tushrik billah do not associate any partners in the worship of Allah. Inna shirka Indeed, shirk is a tremendous wrong, indeed. So he's reminding him about this and teaching him this as a young child. That is a right they have upon us that we teach them about their creator, his names, his attributes, and worshiping him alone. And you can apply that to every aspect of Islam but we look at certain concrete examples. The next example would be purity in prayer. <laughs> purity in prayer, they need to be taught how to make wudu, how to uh, use the restroom properly, basic stuff. And we have a hadith showing this in the Sunan of Imam Tirmidhi, uh, Abdul Malik ibn Rabi' ibn Sabra, he relates from his father that his grandfather said that Rasulullah said, teach your child to pray when he is seven and physically discipline him if he does not pray when he is 10. So there's two or three things here. Number one, when the Prophet says, instruct the child to pray at seven, this means seven lunar years seven lunar years so that really means because we're used to birthdays on the gregorian calendar that means around the time the child is six more or less around the time the child is six they'll actually be around seven according to the lunar calendar the islamic calendar 
So that would also mean that any disciplining would be at the age of nine, according to the Gregorian calendar, and ten according to the Hijri calendar. So teaching the child to pray here, it means instructing them, telling them, uh, getting them to do it. Uh, and then at the age of 10, it has to be something that is forced. And force here means they, we insist that they pray. It's not an option that your children leave salat at the, at the house, right? That is just not an option. They are going to pray. Anyone living in this house is going to pray salat. That's it. That has to come from the mother and the father. And that's a right that they have on us that we instill that discipline. Likewise, it is the right of the child that we instill in them the discipline of fasting in a gradual way that they can handle before it's obligatory. But once they get close to that age where it's going to soon be obligatory, we should insist that they fast. We have the hadith of Rubay'ah bint Mu'awwath, and she says that the Prophet ﷺ sent word on the morning of Ashura to the areas where the Ansar live because we know Ramadan fasting on Ashura one day was obligatory before that was abrogated in place of Ramadan being obligatory so it was a one day obligatory fast so she says that the message was sent to the Ansar to the area where they were living saying that whoever didn't fast in this morning let him not eat for the rest of the day and whoever started fasting this morning let him complete his fast she says we used to observe this fast after that and we used to make our children fast and make them toys of wool if one of them cried for food we would give him that toy until it was time to break the fast this is in bukhari and what does it tell you from the context you can tell that these children were relatively young because they're given a toy, they're given something to distract them in those final hours when the fast gets really difficult. So the point here is they were instructed to fast, they were joining with the adults in fasting, they were also distracted when it got hard, but the point is you don't just leave the child to eat and drink all day in Ramadan and all for six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and then twelve years old, puberty hits and now they have to fast and they have no training whatsoever. This is not fair. You have to instill these things in them beforehand. And each child is different. You know, some children have the capacity to do it and the eagerness to do it very early on. And you should observe them and how they're able to handle that. But if they can handle it, let them do it. Because although it's not obligatory, they receive the reward for fasting. That's the karam of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The generosity of Allah is that when the child is prepubescent, they receive reward for their ibadah they do even though it's not obligatory. And they do not receive sins for whatever haram they might do before they hit the age of maturity. So this is from Allah's rahmah and mercy. From the rights on that children have on us is that we teach them good manners, we teach them good character, and we teach them the fardain. And it doesn't have to be in the level of detail that we're giving in this class, but you want to give them the things that they need in their immediate life that they have to know. And then over time, they learn more and more details about the fardain as they get older. There's a really important statement by Imam Nawawi that I put here in the slide, and it's worth revisiting from time to time. Imam al-Nawi, he has in his commentary on Sahih Muslim this statement. The father must discipline his child and teach him what he needs to know about religious duties. This teaching is obligatory on the father and all those in charge of children. On all who are in charge of children. So that would mean the mother. That would also mean anyone who is appointed in charge over that child by the parents. So if, if you have, it could be they're leaving them in the care and trust of the, the grandmother or grandfather or their other relatives, if they're looking after them and put in charge over them, then it's their duty too to remind them of the obligations of Allah Ta'ala, teach them how to do things properly. 
He says, this was stated by a Shafi'i and his Ashab, his companions. Shafi'i and his companions said that this teaching is also obligatory on the mother. It's the mother's job too. If there is no father, it's her obligation as well. So you get an indication here that the responsibility falls primarily on the father and it falls on the mother if there is no father. Does that mean that the mother doesn't have to do anything as long as the father's on the scene? No, because we all recognize that, especially in the younger years, the children are sponges absorbing whatever they receive from the mother far more than they are from the father, especially in the earliest years. So those are a golden opportunity to instill virtues and values and reminders in the child. But on a technical point, it is the obligation of the father to make sure that these things are instilled. He says, because it is part of the child's upbringing and they have a share of that and the wages for this teaching may be taken from the child's own wealth. What he's saying is that if the only way you can teach your child the deen is to take out some money that uh, the child possesses that it's not in charge over, it's entrusted to you, you can take from that money to pay for teachers. So let's say the child received a certain amount of money from uh, his or her grandparents. And as a child, the child can't use the money. They haven't reached the age of discernment, of rushd. You as a parent, if you have to use that money to pay for a teacher because you're un unable, you can use that money to pay for a teacher to make sure that they learn. If the child has no wealth, then the one who is obliged to spend on him may spend on his education because it is one of the things that he needs and Allah knows best. You know, and we have our own arrangements for this. That could mean uh, Sunday school uh, or programs that we pay for um, or cooperatives where parents come together. There's many ways this happens across cultures. Other, other rights that they have on us as parents is that we treat the siblings fairly. Think about this one. Are we, are we allowed to have favorites among children? It depends. So how, what, in what way does it depend? You can't control your heart. You can't control your heart. If you have three, four, five children, it's almost inevitable that you're going to have a favorite. But you can't show that favoritism in an obvious way by giving them more time, affection, attention, or material items than the others. You have to treat them fairly. And the Prophet ﷺ cautioned us about this, saying, fear Allah and treat your children fairly. It just can't be so obvious. And this can sometimes be a challenge because it means that when you're out shopping and you see that nice shirt, oh, that would look good on such and such child, but that child has a brother and a sister. You have to consider, is this going to be fair? Do I need to get two other shirts? Okay, now the, the price tag is increasing. I'm not going to buy any, right? The idea is that you can't show obvious preference. You could get things for this one, you don't get for the other one, but it can't be so obvious that this one's racking in all the gifts and attention and the others are neglected. This creates resentment between the siblings and problems down the line. Another right that they have over us is that we keep them away as much as possible from bad friends. And it's, it sounds strange to say that that's a right because maybe they want to hang out with those bad friends. But it's actually a right that they have upon us that we don't allow them to do certain things that are going to damage them, cause them harm physically or spiritually, even if they want to do those things. Right? It's our right, it's their right on us that we look after them and exercise, exercise a superior judgment in matters that they don't have full recognition of. That's the way it is. 
And likewise, we can add to that right, protecting their fitrah, which is an incredibly challenging thing to do in this day and age, protecting their fitrah. Other rights aren't about obligations per se, as in salat and tahara and fasting, but they, per- they pertain to equipping our children with the skills and the training they will need that will allow them to develop as a balanced and well-rounded man or woman. And these include a lot of things. And here in the slides, I put, a, I put some things that came to mind, and they're not exhaustive. But you can think of others to add to this list. It is a right that our daughters have on us, fathers and mothers, that we give them life skills that will serve them when they come into womanhood. And for us to give skills to our sons that will allow them to develop into manhood. So they need life skills as a woman, a wife, as a mother, and the young boys need skills for a man, for a husband, for a father. And all of those go back to one important lesson. The person who doesn't have something can't give it. If a person doesn't have those skills, how can they give them to others? So these are skills that we have to develop in ourselves or enhance and then pass them on. We also should give them other things like modeling respect for legitimate authority as personified by the child's father. What this means is that particularly for the mother, the mother of the children, she needs to model through her interaction with her husband a respect for legitimate authority so that the children see what that's like. They also need to be instilled with the skills and or they should be given the duties that they, by which they learn how to carry out responsibilities and to finish tasks and stay on task. So they should be given chores, they should be given responsibilities and challenges so that they learn that life is not free. Your parents aren't going to be there forever to walk behind you and pick up after you. And this is not being mean to children. This is helping them. Because if they don't have that support, if they don't have the parents pushing them to do those things, it becomes crippling for them later in life. Because they get out on their own and they can barely function. I know of one sheikh who was telling me that in in the past few years, He's unsure how to deal with the new batch of students he's teaching because he's meeting people who all their needs have been met going through high school and university because the parents were just concerned with getting the grades. That's it. Just do well in school. We'll take care of everything else. And then they finish school. They get out into the world and they don't even know how to make rice or boil water for tea. So they need to be given these skills to make their life easier later on. it's a duty on us likewise they should be challenged it's a right on on us that we challenge them in age and gender appropriate ways that means we don't coddle them we allow them to rise to the occasion when they're given something challenging have you ever heard this term helicopter parent the helicopter parent What's the difference between a helicopter and a plane? Well, the plane just flies over like this, but the helicopter can go here and there. So the helicopter parent is the parent who is always behind the child. Oh, what are you doing? Okay, okay, let's go here. Okay, let's go there. Okay, let me wipe your nose. Okay, let me feed you. Do this, do that for you. And they're always surrounding them, not letting them develop into themselves as adults. That's the helicopter parent. We don't want to be helicopter parents. It's a fine balance between neglecting the child and being a helicopter parent. It doesn't mean you neglect them. It just means that you have to allow them to grow into their own by giving them challenges, not always rescuing them, 
when things don't work out. Let them learn from their mistakes, right? In a compassionate way, but firm way. Don't just bail them out and swoop in to the rescue. Um, too much pampering, especially for boys, creates weak, incompetent men. Imam al-Ghazali, Hujjatul Islam, in his Ihya Ulum al-Din, he has one book in that collection called Kitab Kasr al-Shahwatayn, the book on breaking the two desires, Shahwatul Batan wa Shahwatul Farj. And in the first part of that book, before he talks about food, he talks about child rearing. Uh, well, this is in the context of Tahdibun Nafs, Riyadatun Nafs. And he talks about child rearing and he says something uh, I found really profound. And I mentioned it to some parents many years ago and some of them got upset. Like, that is totally inappropriate. Imam al Ghazali said, Listen, when you raise your children, especially boys, you have to raise them in such a way that they don't feel that they are owed permanent comfort and convenience. So he said, for example, if they're hungry, don't just rush to feed them as if they're starving. You know, let them wait a little bit for the food. If they're a little cold, don't rush to wrap them in blankets and get them warm. If they're hot, don't rush to turn on the AC, for example. He didn't say AC, but you get what I mean. He said, allow them to experience a little bit of the privation of life. That you're not always going to be warm on a cold day. You're not always going to be cool on a hot day. You're not always going to be quenched on a hot day. You're not always going to be fed and pampered and comforted. So you have to give a little bit of ikhshawshinu. You have to toughen them up. Of course there's balance here. You're not going to just drive without the heat on your car, all the windows down midwinter, and have them run out with a t-shirt in the middle of the snow. No one is saying that. But at the same time, as they get older, they should learn challenges and toughen themselves up. And this is a, a particularly true for boys. For the girls, you can have some leeway. Because the Prophet ﷺ says, uh, be easy going with the precious vessels. Right, their rearing is different. You can pamper them a little bit more, a lot more. Among the rights of children is that we preserve their dignity as well. And that means that we avoid belittling them or mocking them or embarrassing them in front of others. And by that I mean purposefully embarrassing, not just you know, your mere presence is embarrassing them, as a lot of kids feel when they get older. You don't purposely embarrass them in front of their friends or people. And you treat them with respect, especially as they get older. There's the famous saying from Imam Ali, radiallahu anhu, that you raise your children, you, you care for them and pamper them from one to seven, you raise them up. From 7 to 14, you develop them. And 14 and up, you take them as a friend. Not an actual friend in the same way you're friends with people of your age. But you give them adult responsibilities. You treat them like an adult. If you want them to be grown up, you have to treat them like a grown up. You can't criticize them for being childish if you put them always in childish situations and don't allow them to grow. It's tough. Do not masculate daughters or emasculate sons. What does masculate mean? Don't masculate daughters. Don't treat your daughters like men. And don't emasculate your sons. Don't treat them like women. We recognize gender differences, differences in our nature. And these are, there's a beautiful complementary uh, pairing between men and women. You have to teach them their God-given fitri roles as men and as women. And the training and development given to the boys and to men will be very different from the training given to the, to the young women, growing into grown women. You have to train the boy, and that training will come mostly from the father, especially as he gets older, 
and the training of the girl will come mostly from the mother. The idea is that we should not punish or pathologize normal, healthy, feminine behavior in girls. So if the girl is shy, because there's different levels of haya, some people are naturally shyer than others, between men and women. But if a, if a girl is shy, that should not be pathologized. It shouldn't be discouraged. It should be encouraged. And we encourage haya for young boys too, in a male-specific way. We don't punish for masculine behavior in boys, right? Being competitive, being aggressive, yelling. When you hear these kids in the hall, right? Obviously, if we're conducting a class, we tell them, okay, get out. <laughs> we have a class. But when they're running and throwing the ball and this and that, competing and getting loud, that is natural male behavior. It shouldn't be condemned or pathologized. It doesn't need to be medicated so that they become docile and numb. It should just be channeled into the right areas so that it becomes something that develops them into a whole uh, young man. It has to be guided and directed. And it has to be modeled. All of this has to be modeled. فَاقِدُ la the one who doesn't have something cannot give it. If the, if the mother is lacking femininity, how is she going to give that to her daughter? If the father is lacking in masculinity, how is he going to impart that to his son? So that means that we as fathers have to work on ourselves and mothers have to work on themselves to show the children at home that Islam works. We don't just come to the masjid and live our Islam here and throw out all or many of its values when we're behind closed doors at home. We show them through our adab and our akhlaq that, listen, this is our way of life. And that way of life applies to every avenue of life, not just the masjid, but home and work, outside in public and private at home. If the child or children see that Islam works, between the husband and the wife in these healthy uh, roles, they will see that this can work. This works. It's a tried and true method for human happiness. And that is the model of the Prophet ﷺ. If that model is followed, there will be well-being. Following the model of the Prophet ﷺ in our house does not guarantee us freedom from trials and tribulations. Because Allah says that our amwal, our wealth, and our children are fitna. So fitna comes and fitna goes. There's good times and there's bad times. Most times tend to be good times. But if we do come into fitna within our homes, we have the tools for dealing with it, hopefully. And these are uh, not exhaustive. These are the main rights that children have towards their parents. But you can read between the lines and add in your own things that need to be instilled and see them as rights on you as a father or a mother. So this is the conclusion to 7.4, the rights of children. So before I move on, are there any questions pertaining to this module before we go on to family ties? What's the family code? I mean, it might be like some surahs or hadith from the, from the book and then whatever you might have experienced in your life, you just implement it there. And then you just like pass it over to your... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this, this is absolutely. This is actually something, it's not uncommon. Uh, the one that comes to mind immediately is Shaykh Ramadan al-Bulti, rahimahullah ta'ala. So... The, he was, he mentions in, his, in the book, uh, Shaykh Muhammad Sayyid Ramadan al-Bulti mentions about his father in the biography of his father, Hadha Walidi, an excellent book. He mentions that his father became very, very ill to the point where he feared that he was at the end of his life. 
And his father wrote this advice to his children, collecting ayat and hadith and advice and counsel for how they should live the rest of their life. And alhamdulillah, it turns out that he recovered. He didn't die from that illness, but he went ahead and he gave it to his children. So the Shaykh was reflecting on the beauty of this personal letter, this collection of verses and hadith and advice that he gave to his children and how much that impacted him. So if it's something like that, I presume you mean something like this that's passed down, then yeah, there's no problem with that. That's, that could be a, a beautiful cultural practice and they can add to it if they want. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay, let's move on to Sirat al-Rahim, keeping family ties. If you were at the Ask the Imam session this month, or no, the previous month, uh, you'll be familiar with what we're going to talk about tonight, because it's based off of that exclusively. There's not a lot to be said. It's, it, we just need to define our terms and define who counts as family and what does it mean to keep ties and break ties. And this is somewhat similar to what we discussed last week in Birrul Waridain and Uqukul Waridain. Filial piety and the opposite of filial piety, filial impiety. Now, the Prophet mentions in the Hadith Qudsi uh, that Allah Ta'ala created the creation. And when He completed the act of creation, the womb, the, the rahim, pleaded to Allah, and Allah said to it, Are you not satisfied that I connect whoever connects you? And I, and I sever whoever severs you. So the rahim is the womb. And here it is a metaphor for family ties, keeping family ties. This is an obligation. It is ain to know what it means to keep family ties, because if you don't know what it means, it is feared that you may cut the family ties, which is a major sin in Islam. And it is generally wajib to keep family ties, and it is generally haram to cut family ties. Why do we say general? Because there are exceptions. There are circumstances where a person may cut the ties or limit the ties for certain reasons. But generally it's wajib to keep them. And there are degrees. Some surpass others. The ulama say that if you look at keeping family ties as a spectrum, so you have the greatest form of keeping ties, the greatest way of doing it, and then the lowest or the weakest form of keeping family ties, in this spectrum, the lowest end of the spectrum would be avoiding muhajara, just avoiding abandonment. That's the lowest, the lowest part of the spectrum, the, the lowest threshold, to just not abandon them, to not forsake them. And that means the bare minimum, you give them salams. That's it. So let's say a person is in a bit of a conflict with a relative, they can't give up the salams. That's the bare minimum for keeping ties. And the Prophet ﷺ tells us this. Keep the family ties even if it's only with salam. Walaw bis salam indicates yani this is the, the lowest degree of keeping the family ties. There's virtues associated with keeping family ties and there's harms associated with breaking family ties. Among the benefits and virtues of keeping family ties, the ulama tell us, is that it increases love and connection because sila, keeping connection, Increases the feelings of connection. It increases the love. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala connects the one who connects and disconnects the one who disconnects. As we read in that hadith about the womb pleading to Allah ta'ala and Allah ta'ala says, are you not satisfied that I connect whoever connects you and sever whoever severs you? Likewise, keeping family ties is a means of entering Jannah and it's a means of expanding risk. So a person keeping ties, they are, they're employing a means of expansion in their provision 
from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, cutting it is a major sin. And one of the great dangers of cutting family ties is that unlike many sins, the sin of cutting ties is punished in this life even before the next. There are many sins a person may do in this life that they don't get punished for. This is not Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala neglecting to punish them. It's giving that person respite or they face a greater punishment in the hereafter if he doesn't forgive them. But cutting family ties is unique as a sin in that the person is punished in this life before the next. And there's a hadith recorded by Imam Ahmad in which the Prophet sallallahu says there's no sin which Allah hastens with its punishment in this life along with what's stored of punishment in the hereafter like transgression and severing family ties. Transgression al-baghi, transgressing, trespassing on the rights of others. So trespassing and transgressing the rights of others and severing family ties, that person is punished in this life. Now a person may say, I know so-and-so, they've cut family ties and they oppress, I don't see them being punished. But understand that this punishment may not be early on in their career of sin. It could be way later. It could be right towards the end of their life, but they still receive it. It could be at the time of death. And Allah forbid, it could even be by uh, punishment in denial of the ability to say the shahada at death or dying with a bad state. So it's very serious. Likewise, the good deeds of the one who severs family ties are rejected. As the Prophet ﷺ told us in the hadith in Bukhari, the actions of the children of Adam are presented every Thursday night preceding Jumu'ah, and none of the actions of the one who cuts family ties are accepted. So not only are they punished in this life, but the good things they do are not accepted because they're cutting family ties. Likewise, in Bukhari, we find a very scary hadith where the Prophet ﷺ says, the one who cuts family ties does not enter paradise with the foremost, meaning with those who enter among the first of those who enter Jannah, and the one who severs family ties will not enter paradise. So there's actually two hadith here. So two hadith mentioned. And I want to share something with you here. You know, we hear these hadith, you know, that whoever does this, la yadkhulul jannah. They, will not, they won't enter jannah. Whoever, man ghashana falaysa minna. Whoever uh, defrauds us is not from us. Whoever does this or that action will not enter jannah. You know, in the early generations, in the time of the Sahaba and the Tabi'un, the second generation, and even the third, their standard practice was to simply read these hadith without giving them any interpretation. Why do you think they did that? Because if you don't interpret them, you just leave them as they are, they leave a very strong impact on the soul. So you as a Muslim, you hear this hadith, whoever severs family ties will not enter Jannah. It's very impactful on the soul. They wouldn't give the ta'wil, the, the interpretation of these hadith. They would say them as they are to leave that impact. But of course, as different groups emerged, Within the Ummah, you have different groups emerging with different ideas. And one of those groups were the Khawarij. The Khawarij who, as this uh, dissenting group, believe that committing major sins takes you outside of the fold of Islam. So if you do a major sin, you're kafir, according to them. This group was fought by the Sahaba. Now, that group was put down and the Prophet ﷺ says that every generation they re-emerge only to be cut down again. And they do this every generation, that type of group, that mentality rises up every generation only to be cut down until the last of them emerge with the Dajjal, 
Anyhow, the, the point I'm making is the early generations didn't interpret these hadith. They would just say them as they are. Whoever does, does this will not enter Jannah, to leave the impact on the soul. But as these groups emerged, saying doing major sins makes you a disbeliever, the ulama were forced to give the proper interpretation so that people would avoid that confusion. And so they said, whenever you hear hadith like this, where the Prophet ﷺ says, whoever does such and such will not enter Jannah, it's, it doesn't mean that that sin takes them outside of Islam. What it means is that person will not enter Jannah among the foremost. They may enter among the last of those who enter after lots of interrogation and possible punishment in hell. So it doesn't mean you're not a Muslim. It just means that you're a sinful Muslim. And that interpretation was only mentioned to avoid the possible confusion people could have. Otherwise, the early generation wanted these kinds of narrations to leave an impact on the soul. So the question is, if it's obligatory on us to keep family ties, and it's haram for us to cut family ties, there's actually two questions here. Well, who counts as family? And what does it mean to keep family ties? And we can add a third question. What does it mean to cut family ties? That's what we want to answer. So the ulama actually differ about this. There are those who say that it is obligatory on you to keep ties with the mahram relatives, meaning the unmarriageable kin. So mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, grandparents, aunts, and uncles. Cousins aren't here. Because why? They're not mahram. But they're still family. So one opinion is that keeping the family ties is wajib only for this class, the mahram family members. The other opinion says no. It includes even the non-mahram family members. So that means the cousins too. And even, uh, even some others, you know, you're the... You could expand that a little bit more. You know, some of the imams said that anyone who's called family, you have to keep ties with them, right? Of course, it stops at some point because we're all family from Prophet Adam, alayhi salam. And I mean, I, I personally incline to the view that it, it is the immediate family, the mahram family. Wallahu alam. Uh, even though, I mean, the Maliki view is other than that, that it includes relatives in general, mahram and non-mahram. Uh, that doesn't mean that you're cutting off your cousins, right? It just means that keeping ties with them is at a lower degree of obligation. It is recommended, highly recommended, but not at the same status as keeping ties with your mother or your father, your grandparents or your aunts or uncles, right? So you could add your cousins for good measure to avoid that difference of opinion, and it's already recommended, so you should do it anyway. So what does it mean to keep ties? Keeping ties, Silatul Rahim, is by the things we do and the things we say. And it can take on a variety of forms. And those forms are determined by the custom of the people. So what one culture considers customary practices done among family keeping ties then that's keeping ties. It, it is uh, dependent on the custom of the people. So that's going to differ from place to place, land to land, culture to culture. And even in one large land like America, you have different regions. And then within these regions, you have different uh, classes of people and different types of families. So it can even be boiled down to their orf of a single family, the orf of the one family unit. What they deem as normal family ties and behaviors. So we maintain ties in what is ma'roof, what is customary. And it's maintained with the relatives we like and the ones we dislike as well. Now, of course, there's cases where there's abuse or there's extreme toxicity among family members. 
There's conflicts, there's arguments, there's fighting, there's bad blood that's been brewing for a whole generation for some family members. These realities exist, but that's not a justification to cut the ties unless there is fear of harm. If there's legitimate fear of harm, of darar, then a person would avoid someone from the family to avoid that harm, minimizing contact, but they're still not cutting them off because you can still give salams. You just avoid everything else. Keeping ties across cultures usually involves visitation, sitting with them, smiling, giving salams, exchanging gifts, phone calls, emails, texts, responding to invitations, visiting them when sick, attending their janazah is definitely one. Making peace with them is a part of Sila too, if you have some bad blood. Asking about them if they're absent, asking you know, their immediate family, teaching them if they're uneducated and you can teach them, giving them nasiha, good advice, helping them when you can help them, making dua for them, and even spending money on them as needed. All of these are forms of sila, keeping family ties by word or by deed. And they're all counted as silatul rahim. Now cutting ties, a lot of cutting ties would be the opposite of those things. But it's also by action and by statement. Now the ulama do differ about what constitutes Qat'ur-Rahim, Imam Zainuddin al-Iraqi, he says it is by isa'ah, which is anything that constitutes bad treatment. Anything that's bad treatment. Others, they say that cutting family ties is forsaking ihsan. And we mentioned these two because it frames keeping family ties as a binary as an either-or proposition. It means that your relationship with relatives, you are either keeping family ties or you are cutting family ties. There is no intermediary position between the two. So for this relative and for that relative, you are either keeping ties with them or you're cutting ties with them at any given moment. Right? And that's dictated by custom as well, in terms of frequency of contact or the manner of contact or how you are. But if a person is verbally abusing someone, for instance, they are cutting the ties even though they're right in their face and they're in contact with them. Because cutting the ties is not just ignoring them forever, it's also treating them horribly, right? Just as Silat al-Rahim is not just calling them and wishing them Eid Mubarak, it also includes treating them well when they're with you. So it's not just words or frequency of contact, it's behavior as well. So the worst form of cutting ties is cutting ties towards one's parents. Then next in severity is cutting ties with close relatives brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, then distant relatives. This is important because although we say it's obligatory to keep family ties, and that's the mahram family, right? Even within that unit, there's degrees because the parents have priority over siblings, right? And the brothers and sisters have priorities over the aunts and uncles. And cutting ties have degrees of severity here. Examples, as we said, are behavior, enmity, as well as backbiting, fighting, lying, slander, defrauding, right? And other forms include cutting ties by neglect, leaving what is customarily seen as keeping ties in the custom of the people and the family. And I've asked this question before. You know, asking different people from different regions of the world, how, how frequent do you talk to your parents? Or how long would you have to go without talking to them before they think that you are 
neglectful. What about you? How long can you go without calling your mom? So how frequent is this? Two weeks? Yeah. So some people it's daily. Some people it's weekly. Some people it's monthly or bi-monthly. It, it depends on the culture, right? I, I think a lot of Muslim cultures, meaning Muslim-majority countries, Muslim cultures for generations, they, they look at the culture here and it seems, it seems so vastly different where the notion of keeping ties here is different in frequency and in type as it is in the East. And that, that's culturally specific, right? And that shows you the importance of Orf. What dictates that is the Orf. So this, inshallah, ends our Module 7 in its entirety, family law. And this is not everything that, need, that can be said about family matters, but this hopefully covers the gamut of issues that we may run into that we need to know the hukum of Allah concerning. And a lot of the things we discussed touched on negatives because a lot of negatives arise in families or between couples because we're a collection of nufus. We all have egos and we're in the dunya. And as we've mentioned before, one of the objectives of the sharia is to minimize human conflict. And by learning the fardain in family matters, we learn what is obligatory on us to do towards our spouse and our children and family. And we also learn the rights that we have on them. And if everyone's observing these rights, we come to minimize conflict and uh, enhance human flourishing and happiness in the family. And without taqwa, very little of this works until you bring someone in front of a qadi. And we don't have a qadi. So we have to operate on taqwa and giving people their rights and also being easygoing and in, in demanding the rights owed to us and forgiving people in, in the rights that they may neglect of our rights. Wallahu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. We could take a couple of questions on the family matters if there's any. On family ties, anything? So sometimes questions like these are worded generally, but the intention of the questioner is to a very specific case that they're dealing with. I'm not saying that's you, but the, the, and I say that because I can only give a general answer and I can't give a specific answer for a specific case that may have complexities that are not brought up. So the general answer is, as the Prophet ﷺ says, there is no obedience to creation in disobedience to the Creator. Right? Just because a parent is doing something haram, something unjustifiable, doesn't mean that we obey them and imitate them in that thing that is haram. So, of course, there's some complexities here. I can imagine scenarios where there's long-standing family feuds and the parents are treating one side a certain way and they expect their children to be loyal to them and to also take those relatives in animosity. The problem here is if that's unjustified, for you to show animosity and to cut the ties would be to do something haram. We don't do the haram just because our mother or father wants us to do the haram. Imagine if a person's father or mother was walking in the street and with their son and said, son, I don't like that person. 
I want you to go punch him in the face. Are we allowed to, do, must we obey our parents in that? No, we don't. So just because they have animosity towards a family member or anyone else for that matter, doesn't mean we obey them in harming that person. Now, how do you handle that? That's siyasa, that's some, that's some politics, because you have to advise your parents, and depending on the nature of the conflict, you may have to keep the ties in a subtle way to avoid a bigger conflict with your parents. But that subtle keeping of ties can be through maintaining contact on a, in a low-key manner, checking in on them, and also trying to minimize the conflict between the two sides. If, 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 does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so we've done Module 7, and we move along uh, in 2023, with Module 8, which is financial matters. And that is all about the fiqh of buying and selling and avoiding haram in money matters. So I expect we'll probably have a substantially larger crowd because there's lots of questions about those matters. And if you have particular questions, now is the time to think about those particular questions and send them in to the Ask the Imam, the, the anonymous email. Because I'll get those emails directly before we start the program, that module. And I can attempt to answer some of the specific questions that you may have anonymously in the course of going over the basics of buying and selling. So we intend to talk about the basic conditions of buying and selling, the conditions of the buyer, the conditions of the seller, and the thing that is bought, um, and avoiding the three main avenues of haram, which is basically uh, forms of gambling, major and minor, gharar and riba, these three things, and all of the different tentacles that spread from them inshallah so think about your questions write them send them in inshallah the sooner i get them the better because i can just address them inshallah alhamdulillah